Ah, book by book, once again. Here we are at study number five in the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. I'm Richard Buse, joined here by Paul Blackham and by our special guest, Nancy Guthrie from Nashville, Tennessee. We're so glad you're here and please, you'll help us, won't you, in this Bible study. We're very glad to have you here. Well, I'm so, I love getting to talk about God's Word. You all the help we can get. Oh, these little uh, study guides as well that Paul puts together for us. Uh, Isaiah there, Philippians there, and of course we've also got one on, uh, on 1 Samuel. And here we are taking study number five. Our theme is May the Lord Judge, looking at chapters 20 to 25. Let me read actually from chapter 23 for a moment, part of our study, verse 14 onwards. David is on the run, you see, from Saul. David stayed in the desert strongholds and in the hills of the desert of Ziph. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. While David was at Horish in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come on to take his life. And Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horish and helped him to find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You shall be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Well, we love that start for our, our little study today. Join in, get your Bible out if you'd like to have one there with you. And as we think about this, David in flight is given... Uh, chapter 21, verse 1 to 6, he's given temple bread by the priest Ahimelech. Now in the New Testament, Jesus refers to this event in Mark chapter 2, verse 26. Though he doesn't refer actually to Ahimelech by name, he actually refers to Abiathar. Mm. This is not a Bible uh, contradiction or anything like that. Abiathar was Ahimelech's son. He must have been there. And actually in time to come, he became more prominent than Ahimelech, his father, because he became eventually high priest and lasted right up to the time of King Solomon. But here, Jesus refers to David's visit. What does this tell us of David? Well, you know, when Jesus is making the point that it's okay for him to eat the bread, which is reserved for priests, um, the reason it's okay is because he is God's anointed and mm. God is providing for his anointed king and his people. I mean, it's something as old as the, as the people of God in the wilderness. Mm -hmm. God's always provided for his people. There yeah. he provided for them manna in yeah. the wilderness. And so when we come to this scene with David, I mean, we're kind of uh, horrified because David is not a priest. Yeah. And that's, that's the whole issue, isn't it? And yet we know David is the Lord's anointed. He is the leader of God's people. And here God is providing for his man on the run. Yeah. And I think the main thing here is that we see that God's law is always in in, in, intended to serve the community of God's people. Mm -hmm. And that's what we see happening here, I think. Yeah. Exactly. I can see that. Looking on, verse 10 and into chapter 22, why does David behave strangely with this man, Akish? Oh. And what did he learn in the refuge of, well, Bible students know all about the Adullam cave into which yeah. David retreated with all those men with him. 
I think what it is, is David just has this encouragement in a way of eating the sacred bread and then... On it. But he's on the run and he maybe only have a couple of men with him at this time, so he's really feeling his weakness. And he pretends to be insane. Well, he does. It's weird. And he, yeah, he goes to the Philistines and they're like, hang on, this is the David guy who's killed loads of Philistines. And suddenly, I think he, he doesn't trust in the Lord anymore and just sort of, it's a bit like when Peter's walking on the water and as long as his eyes are fixed on Jesus, he's fine. But then he looks down at the water and he starts sinking. It's like that with David here. He suddenly looks around and self-preservation. Oh my goodness, I'm really weak. And then he's totally overcome with fear and then starts shaming himself and, you know, dribbling and behaving like a bad man. And then he, he has to run away. He's so frightened. And then he goes to the cave of Adullam where he has to do some serious thinking. And then he writes Psalm 34. It says, it's, that's where he writes Psalm 34. And that's all about fear. And how if we fear the Lord, we don't need to fear anything else. And it's such a fabulous psalm. It actually says it's about that. Because, and I love it because it talks about when you, if we, I'll teach you the fear of the Lord, says David. And he does that. He learns the fear of the Lord. And then he's not frightened ever again in, in that cave. He learns that. And I, I find that so powerful because people today, in surveys, they say everybody feels they live in fear worry, anxiety about any number of things. Why? Because they don't fear the Lord. And then one of the best verses in the whole Bible for me is Psalm 34, verse 18, which David wrote when he was in that cave as he was teaching himself the fear of the Lord. And it just says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. And it just sounds too good to be true because you think, no, if you're only when you're broken and you're weak and you're helpless, then no one's going to help you then. No, it's though no, the Lord's never been closer to you than then when you're brokenhearted and Christian spirit and weak and you feel like you've, you've ashamed yourself and you've made a mess. Never is the Lord closer to you than then. And if you just cry out to him, even someone now who's watching and thinks, oh, I'm Christian spirit, I'm weak, I, I don't know, I'm totally overcome by fear. Do you know the Lord may never be closer to you than, you are, than right now? Just call to him. He will save you. Call, read this psalm out for yourself right now. The Lord will save you. And at the end, the Lord will rescue his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. That's the very end of that psalm. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. Hold him to it. Call on him right now. It's wonderful that the manifested presence of the Lord Jesus Christ is with those who love him and who, yes, were broken right down. I can think of those, as I'm sure some of our friends sharing in this study can do the same. Somebody who's got nothing they can give anymore. They can't even eat for themselves. They have to be fed. They can't do anything. And yet the Lord's presence will be with them as they trust in him and he will manifest his love, his friendship with them right through, which is a huge thing. David might ought to have known that, of course. Uh, actually, as we look on at chapter 22, verses 6 following, there's the massacre of Ahimelech, of course we mentioned earlier, by his soul servant Doeg. How far might that be connected back to the time in chapter 2 of Eli, mm -hmm. there's an element there, isn't there? Yeah, you know, Doeg was back there in the shadows when David had eaten that bread yeah. there. And so he runs and tells Saul about this. And Saul, he's, he's so full of rage and he does have this evil spirit. I mean, the priests were a gift 
to the people of God from the Lord. And remember, this is this is Saul who refused to kill all of the Amalekites. Mm -hmm. But he comes here and he is so mad that these priests have fed the person he thinks is his enemy, Mm -hmm. David. Uh, He is so mad. He uh, he kills them all. And so it is a great evil. And yet, as we see so often in the scriptures, God is sovereign over this action because he is actually a tool that the Lord is bringing, using to bring about a judgment he promised. If we look back in chapter two, remember that priest Eli and his terrible sons, they called them worthless sons. Yes. Uh, They had done great evil as priests. And what was they were told by the Lord back in chapter 2 of Samuel is he said in chapter 2 verse 31 the time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your father's house so there will be not an old man in your family line mm. that's God speaking to yes. Eli and so we see Saul is actually the tool of God bringing about his his promised judgment yeah. on on the priesthood uh, but it's so very sad. There is but one priest left, and we're, I think we're meant to see this too. This one priest, where does he go? He flees to David. Mm-hmm. And so now as we see this growing strength of David's kingship, now we could say the entire priesthood. It's just mm-hmm. one, but it's, now it's the entire priesthood. It's no longer with Saul, who's officially the king, but with God's anointed mm-hmm. king, David. Yes. He's there with him. And David is learning, learning, learning all the time through thick and thin. And as we look at the contrast, actually, in chapter 23, there's a contrast between Saul's and David's search for guidance. So David is there in verse 10. Would you like to speak to that, Paul, for a moment? Well, it's like there's Saul. How is he getting information and wisdom? He just has to rely on people, sort of human spies and people betraying David and all that. So he's just like an, he is just like a king like any other nation has that has like networks of spies and things. But look at David. That's not how he is. He's the anointed one. He's like trusting in the Lord. So in verse two, he inquires of the Lord. What should I do? That's who he goes to for wisdom and intelligence. Verse two, verse four, verses nine to 12. You know, and he goes and gets the, the, he wants the ephod from Abiathar, the priest. There's there's the priest who's with him. Bring the ephod. I need to know what the Lord's going to say. And that's the massive contrast. Saul knows the Lord's not guiding him. So he has to just rely on human strength and human intelligence. And it doesn't work. But David's like, no, I just want to know what the Lord thinks. I want to know what the Lord thinks. I want to know what the Lord thinks all the time. And he won't do anything unless the Lord tells him. What a difference between the two of them. There is a massive difference. And again, we get the same kind of contrast when we get on to chapter 24, because it's all there. Uh, in chapter 24, Saul's determination to kill David contrasts with David's fear of harming Saul when he has the opportunity to do so. Mm. He could have killed him while he was asleep and just cuts a little bit of the, the edge off his robe and so on, and, but he won't kill him. Why is David so reticent in this matter? You know, this isn't the typical power struggle we're used to in our days where men are grabbing at power for themselves. Certainly Paul, who, I mean, Saul, who has this evil spirit, he is grasping for power. He's Mm -hmm. taking things in his hands. He's trying to kill off his rival. But David is nothing like that. This one who has the spirit of the Lord so strong on him. We read in chapter 24, uh, verse 6. Here's his response to why he um, will not 
take the kingship that has been promised to him from Saul himself. Verse 6, chapter 24, he says, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to notice this, my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift up my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. So here's David who's been anointed, and yet he realizes, he respects that the Lord is the one who set Saul as king. And David is to be king, but he wholly rests on God's timing mm -hmm. and God's way for bringing him into being the king over Israel. And it kind of reminds me of the one that, uh, that David is always meant to point us to, this greater King Jesus. Mm -hmm. Remember that uh, the devil came to Jesus, wanted him to make him king, mm -hmm. but it wasn't God's way, it wasn't God's timing, so he says no. And then even later, there he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Peter is right there beside him. He's thinking earlier than this, you know, uh, Jesus is going to become the king. Mm -hmm. And I want to be right there at his side. And instead, the soldiers come for Jesus there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And they're going to take him, putting an end, it would seem, to Peter as to uh, Christ be taking over and yeah. becoming king of Israel. So what does Peter do? He cuts off the soldier's ear. He wants to use a human method to make Jesus king. And, but Jesus says, no, my hour has not yet come. Mm. And so, so Peter, put away your sword. In a sense, I think that's what David is doing here. He has put away his sword, even though he's cut a bit of his robe, because he's not going to assume the kingship outside of God's timing, making him king. Mm. No attempt at a coup, no. That's fascinating. And, oh, there's so much to learn. When we come to chapter 25, actually, oh, gosh, Samuel dies in this particular chapter. Could this long story then about Abigail and her dreadful snake of a husband, Nabal, yeah. provide something like a lesson, a parable or whatever for us? And it, I think it is a sort of parable of the big picture of 1 Samuel in a way, because at first you think this is a very long story about a strange little incident. And then you look more closely and think about what's happening. There's this guy, Nabal, and he's... Married to Abigail. Now, just imagine that Abigail symbolizes maybe the nation, the whole of the nation of Israel in a way, and that she's married to this one guy and then ends up being married, married to David. But in the process, and her affection goes from Nabal to David. But why? Because there's this Nabal who's like a, 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 he's out, he's a paranoid man and he thinks everyone, David's been his friend. David's been helping him and looking after his flocks. He's like, no, he's my enemy. He's only out to destroy me. And everyone's like, no, he isn't. David's helping you. And Nabal can't see it. And he's so locked in his own paranoia and selfishness and, and things. And then he ends up dying and he loses Abigail and Abigail goes to David. And if you look at that and you think, hang on, Nabal's an awfully lot that sounds like Saul. And he's got all this. He's in charge of things at the beginning. But at the end, he's gone. And David's in charge of everything that Nabal had. And you think... I, I think this is a picture of the big picture and that Saul is being portrayed for us in this story somehow. I think that's right. And actually, Abigail comes out of it so well mm. because here is this man, Nabal, uh, and David is furious with him. Yeah. And he's sending out troops to deal with him. It says here, verse 18, Abigail lost no time. Yeah. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five... 
five shears of roasted grain, 100 cakes of raisins, 200 cakes of pressed figs, just a little gift for you, <laughs> David, old man. Just a, and in that case, in that situation, she's freed. She's all right. Indeed, the time comes when she's actually going to marry David. Yes. So that she is wonderfully vindicated. And as we end off, really, we're thinking that in all of these people, rude instruments in a rude age, that's what the, all of these deaths and huntings and so on that's going on. But here and there, people of integrity and goodness pop up. Here and there. And such is the power of goodness and love that just one person of goodness can outrank a hundred people for evil. One person can do it. Just a few. One person in the street, one person in the family, one person in the workplace. Their influence for goodness and for Jesus Christ is so big, it makes a difference. And we hold on tight. You may be the one person in your school and in your class who's a believer. The others are laughing at you. I know people who are in that very situation. They're very strong and they keep on coming through and they make a difference. We'll have our last study in this particular book next time. <laughs>